Howdy. What's going on? Thanks so much for listening to the podcast. It is heard live every day, by the way, from noon until 3 on WBT Radio in Charlotte. And if you want exclusive content, invitations to events, the weekly live stream, my daily show prep with links, become a patron. Go to thepetecallendershow.com. This podcast is also supported by North Carolina businesses, so please consider supporting them. Try not to skip through their short ad. Make sure you hit the subscribe button to get every episode for free right to your smartphone or tablet. And thanks so much for your support. I do apologize. Yeah, it's uh, and going on. This is now eighth day battling whatever this allergy, pollen, cold, head cold thing is. I don't even know anymore. I woke up this morning. I was feeling pretty good. I ate some day quills, you know, and uh, about seven o'clock, I guess, and felt fine. And then not kidding, like four minutes ago, four minutes ago, all of a sudden just start like left left side of the nose just starts itching again you know, inside, want me to sneeze, just, I don't get it. I'm back to blaming pollen. I mean, it's so easy to blame pollen. It's so nasty. We can all hate pollen together, but okay. Um, All right, so the North Carolina State Supreme Court held court, I guess, yeah, that's what they do, but they were uh, in session again yesterday, and they were taking a second, second look at another ruling that the Democrat majority, when it had control of the Supreme Court, uh, pushed through as they were uh, on the way you know, towards the election and getting voted out of office, out of their majority. And so they, they fast-tracked the voter ID law, the, the trial over the voter ID law, or the ruling, I should say, because there was a lower trial court issued a ruling, and uh, the state Supreme Court then said, we agree with this lower court's ruling, which was, you know, Democrat-controlled panel, but we agree with the trial court. And then the, um, well, the trial court and the the appeals court and then themselves and all the Democrats, all the Democrat lawyers agree with all the Democrat lawyers. And so uh, after they lost the state Supreme Court majority, the legislative leaders that had lost the case, they asked uh, for the state Supreme Court to rehear the case. And I got to tell you, I am not a fan of the way oral arguments are carried out. And maybe it's not for my benefit. Uh, okay, maybe it's all right, definitely not for my benefit. Okay, I'm not like this. I'm not this raging narcissist where I think that they're holding court for me. But as a citizen of the state, I think it is, you know, it's only fair to be able to watch the tri- the uh, oral arguments rather and be able to follow along and and listen to their their arguments and and listen to them debate. But it's it's not for us. It's for them. It's for them because they get, you know, mountains of paperwork. They get all of the filings, all of the motions and all the stuff, and they get footnotes and they get case law. And so the questions that they're asking up there during the oral arguments, and this is the case, I think, also at the U.S. Supreme Court, the questions they ask, I'm not even sure what the what the design is all about in a lot of cases because I mean, do you think that this person's going, the lawyer in front of you is going to make some sort of a persuasive argument that you had not considered and they're going to convince you? I I, I don't know. I don't think so. It seems to me like whenever I hear the questions that are asked, it's always more of a combative nature, right? You get, you get the conservatives that are asking the liberal side and the liberal judges asking the conservative side. And we saw that at the state Supreme court level as well over the last two days. And I've got some audio that I didn't get to yesterday from uh, from 
the what would that be Tuesday's hearings, Tuesday's oral arguments, I should say, um, on the redistricting matter. And like some of it got kind of testy because there's, there's a new judge on the panel on the state Supreme Court, Richard Dietz. He's a Republican. And some of the questions he was asking, like, well, first off, you could tell that it it annoyed one of the lawyers for the lefty group. That was obvious. And he was asking him to to comment about what might be sanctionable, uh, I don't want to say offenses, but I guess, because one of the lawyers in the filing said, oh, this is a frivolous motion. And when you apparently in the law, when you accuse somebody of filing frivolous motions, that's a big deal. That's a big deal. And so if you're acute, because you can you can be sanctioned for, you know, wasting the court's time. And that's what the uh, common cause plaintiffs, the lefty group that sued over the redistricting maps. Um, that's what they accused the legislative leaders of doing by asking for a rehearing. And this issue kind of came up in yesterday's oral arguments as well. It's kind of a lengthy back and forth, um, but I think it's well worth listening to because you've got, on the one hand, you've got Anita Earls, who is a, a Democrat, you know, liberal justice, and she's trying to argue that the legislative leaders should not even be in front of them again with this case because this is upending all of the norms, all of the precedent, all of the the usual way that we do things. Which is always interesting to me because the left loves their landmark rulings in court. They they love their landmark rulings. They're all about the landmark opinions, right? They always want to set precedent, and then once the precedent gets set the way they like it, then you can't touch it. That's stare decisis, right? That's the way it's always been done, so you can't now, I mean, we can we can find like we can find in the state constitution, for example, we can find in uh, one article of the constitution where it says elections shall be free and fair, and that means you can't use partisan gerrymandering, you can't use partisan identification, you can't have quote unfair maps, you can't right. We can we can divine all of these other kinds of uh, of theories out of the plain text of the Constitution. And then once we do that, you're not allowed to redefine it again. That's sorry decisis. <laughs> That's because now it's precedent. You have to leave it intact. This is the way it is. So after they at the US constitutional level, right, when they when they found the the right to abortion inside the right to privacy. Can't touch it anymore. Sorry. That's settled law. So no, I don't believe them. I don't believe their arguments when they say, you know, these things are unprecedented and we, you should not disturb precedent and all of that. We need to keep following the way things are and the way they always have been in the, the former interpretations because they don't adhere to these principles themselves. They just did it with the voter ID. They did it with the, the legislative redistricting maps. Uh, they, they did it with the Leandro school funding. And that's why the Republicans who now control the court, that's why they're saying we are going to go, come back and rehear these cases. Oh, and by the way, we are allowed to do it. By the way, it's in the rule book. So when you see these leftist moonbats like Gene Nickel, UNC law professor, left wing activist guy who has a, a, a post at the McClatchy papers where he just spews forth his venom. I mean, this, I've got it. I've got his his uh, 
his op-ed. It's ridiculous. He calls it villainous is what he calls it. It's in the rule book, dude. You're allowed to rehear the cases. You are allowed to do it. And they followed the rule book. But he wants he wants to argue that this is somehow outside the rule book when it quite literally is rule 31. It's literally a rule that you're allowed to have a rehearing. And that's what they that's what they did. That's what they they did Tuesday and they did yesterday. First on the maps and now on the voter ID. And we'll take a listen to it. Um, all right. So the North Carolina Supreme Court looking at the uh, 2018 voter ID law that we I mean, we've been working on this for like a decade. The court could reinstate the law. It could reverse a decision that was handed down by the state Supreme Court like three months ago. The attorney for the uh, legislative leaders who asked for this rehearing, his name is Peter Patterson, and he says that the Supreme Court failed to presume good faith among the lawmakers and it flipped the burden uh, burden of proof inappropriately. The trial court got facts wrong about the case. It repeatedly drew bad faith inferences when good faith inferences were available and uh, that the Supreme Court, uh, by fast tracking it and the the lower courts, it was all hastily uh, decided. And so it needs to be reheard. Justice Anita Earls, who was a leftist uh, activist lawyer uh, now on the Supreme Court, uh, she tries to argue to Patterson that the court should not be rehearing this case at all. And then you're going to hear from Richard Dietz, who is a Republican justice. You're going to hear him pipe in at the end of this uh, soundbite here. Certainly this argument about flipping the burden of proof and failing to um, accord the legislature the presumption of good faith, those were arguments that were made to this court on appeal the first time, correct? They were, Your Honor, yes. And so doesn't our standard on rehearing um, require that, um, that, that, that we only rehear a case and we only reverse a case if we've made some, if there's some legal issue that we fail to consider the first uh, time no, no, Your Honor. Actually, the standard set out in the rule, Rule 31, is if something has been misapprehended or overlooked. Right, and so overlooked we, would mean that we didn't address it. Well, it's misapprehended or overlooked so is, then under argu- Rule 31. So your and, argument is that we should rehear and change our opinion because we got it wrong the first time. Yes, and this court has done yes. that several times before. In yes. the Alford case, for example, in the Branch Bacon case, for example, those were both cases where there was a misapprehension and the court reheard it and it came with a different outcome. Well, and those, let me it's a ask similar you- situation is here. Let me ask you about what our court has said in the past about the presumptions that apply when we're hearing a case on rehearing. Because um, Weisel versus Cobb, which is um, cited in the briefs in this matter, a um, 1898 decision of this court said, um, the court there said, as the highest principles of public policy favor a finality of litigation, rehearings are granted by us only in exceptional cases, and then every presumption is in favor of the judgment already rendered. So you're not asking us to to overrule that precedent, I take it. Uh, Well, that precedent was not under the current rule for rehearing, which is Rule 31, and the standard there is if something is misapprehended. And the cases, again, Branch Baking, Alford came much after that case. So you're saying we shouldn't follow this rule that was laid down in 1898? 
it did not apply to the current statute. But in any event, we believe those standards are met here. And in addition, what the well, cases say, if cases are decided hastily, is another basis for rehearing. And here, the initial decision clearly was decided hastily. The Court of Appeals was skipped. The oral argument was expedited. And there were at least four basic errors about SB 824 and the record in the opinion. I've already mentioned two of them with respect to the federal worker IDs and with respect to the eligibility date for the voter IDs. In addition, it said there were five amendments that were tabled in the Senate proposed by Democrats, and there were four. It also said that Mississippi's voter ID law allows people to sign an affidavit and vote. But in fact, after signing that affidavit, people in Mississippi have to go back with a photo ID or with an explanation that they have a religious objection to being photographed. And so these things in the opinion are reflective of the haste with, with, with which the decision was decided. So is it then your argument to us that because of the timing of our um, consideration of this case, that the presumption that the judgment already rendered is correct, that that presumption no longer applies? I'm saying that is one basis this court has repeatedly said is a basis to rehear a case. An additional basis is the basis that is in the uh, statute in the rule, which is if something is misapprehended or overlooked. And we've said several things that have been misapprehended. So, so help me understand yes. when any case would be final. Because in every case, there are two sides to the argument. Yes. And the side that loses believes that we misapprehended the law and got it wrong. So where do we draw the line? When do we not allow rehearing? If, if, uh, if one side says we got it wrong, that's sufficient to have rehearing and reverse our decision. Where, how does that give us any finality in the law? When a majority of this court, considering the arguments that something was misapprehended or overlooked, decides that no, we do not agree with that, right. that Council, would be when it was when a decision. Would I have required. a question for you: um, Is there a time limit in Rule 31 that applies not to the parties but to the court? Uh, no, not that I'm. Well, well, yes, there is, Your Honor. It's 30 days after right. the rehearing petition. Yes. And I think you're pausing because can you think of another rule of procedure, which tend to be focused on the parties, that puts a time constraint on the court itself? I'm not aware of one. I can't no, think of no. one either. And you might ask, why would the drafters of Rule 31 put that in there? And it seems that the reason is finality. Mm -hmm. So in North Carolina, under our procedure, a decision isn't final until 15 days after the mandate issues. And then, if there is a petition for rehearing, it's still not final, but there's a tight time frame in there to get this thing done. Right. So there's the key for uh, Anita Earls, Justice Earls. Right. There's the key. If you don't rush through the process, skipping the Court of Appeals, fast-tracking cases so you get to rule on them before you lose your majority, right? If you don't behave like that, then chances are... Um, you don't have these types of rehearings. But because you guys did what you did, it, it opened the door for this to occur because then you lost your elections and they had a tight time frame and they made it. They asked for a rehearing and they got it. So maybe do better next time. Maybe don't act like an activist court and you won't have these types of rehearings come up as, this one, as these two have. That's all.
It's pretty clear to me. All right. Are you prepared for a disaster? Do you need some advice? Are you looking for a military surplus that's real? Well, for more than three decades, the answer has been Old Grouch's Military Surplus in downtown Clyde. It is an old school, traditional store. It's got a mix of modern and vintage items. See my friend Tim. He'll hook you up. He gets new stuff in all the time. American made because it's real military surplus. Camo, shirts, hats, customized dog tags, gear, Old Grouches on Main Street, downtown Clyde, across the street from the anti-aircraft gun. The shop is open Monday through Saturday and all the time at oldgrouch.com. North Carolina State Supreme Court Justice Mike Morgan, the other Democrat besides Anita Earls on the uh, court, cited the trial court opinion that the intention of uh, of the legislative leaders was clear due to Arlington Heights criteria. Maybe you have heard of this before. I've covered it over the years. It comes up in all sorts of ways. comes out of a, a Supreme Court ruling about a, a public housing project. And it, uh, it, the details of the case don't, don't really matter so much because what the Arlington Heights criteria, sometimes they call it like this mosaic. <laughs> they call it a mosaic of factors. It's the way that the court can determine whether you had some sort of discriminatory intent, even if you never said anything discriminatory, you never gave any evidence of discriminatory intent, um, or even if you crafted some sort of a policy that was neutral, that was on its face neutral, either you know racially or ethnically or religiously or whatever, right? You, you, you create some policy and you're like, here's my policy. It applies to everybody equally. And what the Arlington Heights case determined was that you can look at these different factors, the judges can, and so, of course, then the lawyers, you know, outline the factors for the judges who are lawyers with a wardrobe change, and then the 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 judges then say, okay, you've convinced me these factors exist, that even if you wrote a policy that was not intended to discriminate, or there's no evidence that the intention is to discriminate, I still find Discriminatory intent. The method of proof originally developed for equal protection clause cases uses a number of different types of circumstantial evidence that when you look at it collectively altogether, it'll demonstrate that the uh, the recipient acted at least in part because of race, color, national origin or whatever. This framework is most commonly applied in cases alleging discrimination against a whole group. Neutral practice that has an effect on a large class defined by race, color, or national origin, right? This is, this is the Arlington Heights criteria and the factors that they outline. This is from the Justice Department, by the way. They have a, a healthy or a, a, rather a helpful uh, list of the factors or circumstantial evidence that can point to intent. Statistics. This disparate impact statistics, you've heard this before, right? If you can show that uh, statistically that A group of people versus B group of people is impacted in a different way, in a, in a worse way or more impactful way, right, than, than group B that by their population, like let's say group A is 90% of the population, group B is 10%, and group A derives... 100% of the benefit and group B gets 0% of the benefit from this policy, then you could say, ah, oh, that's a disparate 
impact. Or it it goes the other direction. Maybe group B, only 10% of the population, they end up getting harmed. Like all of them get harmed by the policy. 100% are harmed. And 0% of group A, the 90%, none of them get harmed. Right? You would say that's a disparate impact. So I, I present to you these statistics, and the statistics show disparate impact. And as such, that is a pattern of discriminatory effect. Also, you can look at the historical background of the decision and other decisions on comparable matters. You can look at the sequence of events that led up to the decision. Compare it to the sequence of events of other decisions that were, that were not discriminatory. Uh, departures from normal procedures. Right, So if you do something like, I don't know, fast-tracking a a court case like that, you know, stuff like that. In this case, it was done during a lame duck session. That's like literally the textbook definition in this Justice Department rundown is the voter ID law that was passed. This was House Bill 589, and it ended up – the NAACP sued – And so Pat McCrory was listed as the defendant. So it's NAACP versus McCrory. And this is the case that is literally the definition of how to apply the Arlington Heights criteria into a case to determine whether or not a legislative body had discriminatory intent. Now, those astute listeners may have picked up that this is House Bill 589. This is not Senate Bill 824. Senate Bill 824 is the one that the Supreme Court is ruling on, is hearing, is rehearing. That's the most recent one. House Bill 589 was struck down by the courts because it failed the Arlington Heights criteria. They said, you pass this voter ID with discriminatory intent. You pass this law with discriminatory intent. Senate Bill 824 comes along a couple years later, and it gets sued over again. And because 589 was struck down, the lower courts and the state Supreme Court says, well, that shows a historical pattern. According to the Arlington Heights criteria, that's a historical pattern. So you tried it again, and some of the same lawmakers that are in Raleigh were also the ones that passed the House Bill 589 that got struck down. Arlington Heights directs courts and agencies to engage in a cumulative assessment of the evidence by way of illustration, North Carolina State Conference of the NAACP versus Pat McCrory. Right? The lawsuit here says plaintiffs challenged the NAACP challenged provisions of a North Carolina election law alleging that discriminatory intent to disenfranchise African-American voters motivated the legislature in violation of the 14th and 15th Amendments and the Voting Rights Act. The Fourth Circuit agreed uh, the district court's error in holding otherwise, the Fourth Circuit explained, quote, resulted from the court's consideration of each piece of evidence in a vacuum rather than engaging in the totality of the circumstances analysis required by Arlington Heights. So in other words, the lower court judge, I think his name was Schrader or Schroeder, he looked at, I mean, it was like a 500-something page opinion he wrote. I read, I read it at the time. And he walked through all of the allegations from the plaintiffs, the NAACP, and he dismantled every single one of them, saying this isn't true, this isn't true, here's why. But what the Fourth Circuit said was 
you shouldn't look at each individual piece of evidence alone. You have to put them all together. And when you put them all together, now we see discriminatory intent. Historical background. The court considered the historical background in North Carolina generally and related to voting in particular, identifying North Carolina's history of race discrimination and recent patterns of official discrimination combined with the racial polarization of politics in the state. They found that relevant. Against this background of historical discrimination in the state, the court found the, quote, record is replete with evidence of instances since the 1980s in which the North Carolina legislature has attempted to dilute the voting rights of African-Americans. Well, that would be Democrats, by the way, because they're the ones who controlled the state until Republicans took over in 2010, tried to do a voter ID act. They pointed to numerous instances of Department of Justice and federal court determinations that have determined that the North Carolina General Assembly acted with discriminatory intent. And again, they cite gerrymandered maps, which Democrats did and had tossed out, (laughs) right? Laws that Democrats passed that then got overturned. They also pointed to the sequence of events. They say the General Assembly rushed it through, rushed through the legislative process, uh, which was true because, remember, the Supreme Court uh, lifted the uh, the civil rights, uh, the preclearance requirements, remember, for all the voting rules and stuff. And so when they lifted that, the North Carolina legislature moved a different bill through. Uh, The record revealed also the General Assembly requested a report on voting patterns and that the data established that African-Americans in North Carolina disproportionately used early voting, same-day registration, and out-of-precinct voting. So the court said that when they relied on this data, the General Assembly enacted legislation restricting all of them, and that disproportionately uh, affected black voters. Because they, remember, they cut hours of early voting, Uh, They limited out-of-precinct voting. They limited the use of same-day voting, or same-day registration, rather. And because they did all of these things all at once, then they said, the court said, that's part of the mosaic. Those are all factors. See, they did all of these things. So, Senate Bill 824 comes along a couple years later, and they say, all right, we won't do those things. And now the uh, the plaintiffs, the ones who sued, and the, the liberal judges that agree with them, now they say eliminating those things is also proof of racial discriminatory intent. <laughs> so it's if you if you if you do anything, that's discriminatory. And if you don't do anything, well that too is discriminatory. It's almost as if it's rigged. I know I'm going way deeper into the voter ID stuff than you probably ever thought you wanted to know about but you did that's the thing you did want to know about this you're welcome i'm a giver uh already so justice mike morgan he cites the arlington heights criteria right talks about there was this um you know the earlier um unconstitutional voter id law house bill 589 the original one that got struck down He noted that the same lawmakers voted on that one. A lot of them voted on the Senate Bill 824. So there's a House bill and a Senate bill. House bill got struck down. Senate bill is what they're arguing over now. And by the way, one of those lawmakers that voted on the bill is sitting right next to him, Tamara Barringer. She's now on the Supreme Court. (laughs) Uh, She's one of the judges that won. Um, 
Also, he says it was, you know, pushed through in a legislative lame duck session, kind of like the decision on this case was through the lame duck court. He talked about the disparate impact on black voters, even though that doesn't really hold. That That, that is the weakest argument, by the way, on the voter ID on Senate Bill 824. It's the weakest argument because they the Republicans have come up with so many different ways that you can get around the voter ID requirement that people like Jay Delancey at the Voter Integrity Project, like he's opposed to this Senate Bill 824. He says it's way too lenient. Um, so the lawyer for the legislators, he said the record does not support a finding of discriminatory intent. Five Democrats voted to support this bill. And you have to analyze the uh, intent of the legislature in terms of the plaintiff's theory of this case. The plaintiff's theory of this case is one of partisan entrenchment, that the Republicans in the General Assembly sought to entrench themselves by targeting African-Americans who typically vote for Democrats. And yet five Democrats voted for this bill, four in its final form. And no one has ever explained how that is consistent with the plaintiff's theory of the case. The trial court did not. The plaintiffs have not in their briefs. This court in its initial decision did not. Yeah. Why, why would four Democrats vote to entrench Republicans? Why did they do that? They've never explained it. He's exactly right. Morgan said discriminatory intent was found to be a contributing factor. It doesn't have to be the contributing factor. So why would the trial court be in error, he asked. So Patterson says, well, this is a case of inferences, right? That you have to kind of draw some inferences. You have to make some conclusions based on the evidence at hand. And he said the trial court repeatedly in every instance drew the worst bad faith inference regardless of whether the facts showed otherwise. For example, the forms of ID that are acceptable under our law. The plaintiffs have not demonstrated any array of ID that would produce a narrower racial disparity. And when you have a legislature that is operating under a constitutional requirement to enact a voter ID law. And as far as the evidence in this case shows, they enacted the voter ID law with the narrowest possible racial disparity. But that's an an argument as to how to look at the evidence. But if the evidence shows that this is in existence and it's in the record, then isn't the trial court in a position to accept the evidence, construe the evidence, apply the law to the facts here, Arlington Heights, and determine, therefore, that because there is evidence, the findings of fact are supported by the evidence, and the conclusions of law are supported by the findings of fact? Not on this record, Your Honor, no, because the findings of the facts in this record do not support a finding of racial discrimination. As I said, the the theory of this case is partisan entrenchment. So we have evidence that the legislature enacted the narrowest possible racial disparity in terms of a voter ID law. But then in addition to that, the legislature made sure that every voter can vote. They have not identified a single voter in North Carolina who cannot vote under SBA 24. That is a key point here. The plaintiffs in this case that sued over this law have not been able to identify a single person that would be prevented because every voter can vote because there are free IDs available at early voting locations. It is the most generous, the most liberal voter ID law in the land, and it's still not good enough.